Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. You are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Reading this gospel passage in one hand with the newspaper in the other does not sound like very good news to us. It's rather like the doctor who called the patient and told them that he had received his test back and that there was bad news and worse news. The patient hesitated for a moment and then said, well, give me the bad news first. The test gave you 24 hours to live, returned the voice. Oh my gosh, what news could possibly be worse than that? The doctor replied, I tried to reach you yesterday. I know we are in vacation mode. The sun is out, the pool is open, the watermelon is ripe, but this gospel is anything but summery and cheerful. Herod is throwing a big birthday bash for himself, and it does not end well, especially if your name is John the Baptist. Can you imagine what it was like to be John the Baptist in this gospel? I wonder what he was thinking here on the last night of his life. Here he is, the scintillating seer of God's reign, the one whose eyes were glued open in anticipation of the Messiah, the one whose hands had guided the Son of God down into into the Jordan's waters and baptizing the Son of God in the Father's good pleasure. John, whose life was looking up, whose career was only just getting started, gets the phone call the dreaded phone call. The bad news is that you're going to die. The worst news is that Herod wants your head. Yikes. At one level, it feels next to impossible on this sunny and pleasant Sunday in July to identify with this moment of agony that John must be experiencing. Our imaginations struggle to produce the feelings of bewilderment, shock, and desperation he must have felt. At another level, though, I suppose any of us can identify with John. Here he is, at the end of his life, being forced to ask, was my life worth it? Did I give it to something that really counts? St. Mark wants us to have the sense that John failed and Herod succeeded. John had heralded the messianic banquet. Herod is throwing the party of the year. John had preached the justice of God. Herod is enacting the justice of Rome. John desired that people pour out their sins to receive the spirit of God. Herod has people pouring wine for himself so that he can become inspirited. Herod is the success, John is the failure. The story ends with these words. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. I can't help but wonder what John felt here in prison on the last night of his life. I wonder if alone with his thoughts, his inner voice asks, not just did I fail, but the far scarier question, am I a failure? If I am not a failure, who then am I? But there's only one thing worse 
than the sense of failure that accompanies us when things don't go as planned. An Irish humorist once said, there's only one thing worse than not getting what you want. That's getting it. There's success and there's failure. And sometimes the worst kind of either is when the success is haunted by failure. When you gain the goal of your ambition only to discover how small the sense of success really is. And the enjoyment just drains away like water in a leaky bucket. I wonder if that's what Herod felt. After the music had ended, after the band had gone home, after his wife had dozed off to sleep, I wonder if he laid there, a little tipsy, alone with his thoughts, staring blankly at the ceiling, successful, and yet haunted by an inconsolable sense of failure. Success and failure. I want to tell you a story that might help shed some light on this strange gospel. It's the story of Grace Thomas. You've probably never heard of Grace Thomas. No reason that you should. She was the child of a streetcar conductor from Birmingham, Alabama. Through her job as a secretary, she became very interested in politics and law. So she enrolled at Knight Law School. When she finally graduated from law school, she astonished her family when she told them, I'm not going to practice law. I've decided to run for political office. What office, mother? Her kids asked, expecting her to say the school board or the library board. Grace didn't miss a beat. I'm going to run for the governor of Georgia, the highest office in the state. Now this was 1954 when Grace Thomas ran for governor of Georgia. There were nine candidates that year, eight men and Grace Thomas. Nine candidates, but only one issue. You remember, 19, 1954, it's Brown versus Board of Education. It had come from the Supreme Court to integrate the public schools. And eight of those candidates for governor said they thought Georgia ought to resist this with every fiber of their being. Only one candidate, Grace Thomas, said she thought it was the coming of justice. Her campaign slogan was, say grace at the polls. And although many Georgians, uh, it's clever, although many Georgians knew about religion, this grace thing was another story. She ran dead last, and her family was, was relieved that she had gotten this out of her system. But she hadn't. In 1962, she ran for the governor of Georgia again. This time, the civil rights movement was in full flower and the stakes were high. She went around the state with her message of progress and prosperity and racial harmony. She received death threats on her life. Her family feared for her and they traveled with her around the state to protect her. One day, she went to give a campaign speech in the little town of Louisville, Georgia. The center, centerpiece of Louisville is not a Civil War monument or a county courthouse. It's an old slave market where human beings were bought and sold. Grace Thomas addressed the gaggle of farmers and merchants and she pointed to that slave market and said, 
This, thank God, has passed and the new has come. It's time for Georgians to join hands, all races together. Somebody in the crowd shouted out at her, Are you a communist? No, she said. Well, where did you get these crazy ideas? She thought about it for a minute. And then she pointed at the steeple of the, at the First Baptist Church, and she said, I got him over there in Sunday school. It was a dynamic campaign she ran. The results of the 1962 election, in case you're wondering, Carl Sanders gained 300,000 votes. Grace Thomas had less than 40. You see, there's success and there's failure, but then there's something else. There's the call of God on your life, the call and claim of God to give yourself to something that matters. Mark's gospel about John the Baptist doesn't end successfully. Grace Thomas's campaign doesn't end successfully, whatever that me might mean. Maybe it's not success they were given, but maybe it's not success they were after. But let me ask, is John's life, this horrific story, is his life somehow reconciled, made whole, or is his death just a senseless act of the state, and like anybody else's, a horrible tear in the world's garment, to be sure, but ultimately meaningless? What about us? Are our lives simply the story of diminishment, where we suffer, grow old, and come unraveled? Is life a cluster of joys and failures overshadowed by a tragic sense of death? Here's the good news that we can gather from the margins of this story. Mark ends John's, Mark ends John's story with a brutal death and him being laid in a tomb. Mark ends his gospel with another person who died a brutal death to then be laid in a tomb except this person couldn't be contained by the tomb. And I suspect that the good news of the gospel is that our story, like John's, has been taken into his story. Our diminishment and failure has been baptized into his life and death. And that fact has the power to change every breath we take. I wonder as John the Baptist heard the doubts of failure tempting him in prison, as he considered his life, his calling, his career, his posterity, as he heard the ominous tunes of Herod's party, I wonder if he felt stirring deep down in his soul that none of this is what ultimately mattered. But what made all the difference is that his story was taken up and folded into a larger narrative. It's the same conviction that drove Grace Thomas's life, and it's the same conviction that can drive our lives. Not that we were exceptionally successful people or that we've just made a colossal failure of everything. Something different than self-assessment altogether. Something more like a relationship with a presence that has accompanied us our entire lives. Blessing our joys, hearing our griefs, and binding up our wounds. Because it's here this morning that we recognize that the arc of our lives is not a tragedy that our lives, like John the Baptist's life in Mark's gospel, are folded into a larger, more triumphant narrative, 
one that knows that behind the tears there's joy, behind the tomb there's resurrection, and underneath the great and serious demonstrations of history there's a joyful levity, a party that Herod that Herod's can't hold a match to. I'm not talking about a party after we die. We can glimpse this party here this morning, here at this table. Friends, this is our party. This is our feast. And this feast and this God will never fail us. Amen.